We come now to our introduction to systematic theology lessons. Remember last week we introduced a new section, a new doctrine, and that it was the doctrine of God's eternal decree. And if you recall, there was mainly just one point I wanted to get across last week, and that was the importance of this doctrine in relationship to what follows it, as well as in relationship to what precedes it. It is important to understand this doctrine in relation to what follows, because as we talk about the what of covenants, of creation, of man, the fall, salvation, and even eschatology, the end times, it is important that we understand the why of these things. It is important to understand that there is a plan to all of this, to every bit of it. God is not winging it as we go along. And so many people fail to properly understand these doctrines that follow because they fail to understand this one. Furthermore, it is important to understand this doctrine in relationship to what precedes it. That is, those doctrines we have already established in our study, the doctrines of Scripture and of God. The doctrine of Scripture establishes our source for learning about God's decree. Answers to questions revolving around election and predestination and, and what all is included in God's eternal plan are to be sought in His Word, not in our feelings and our emotions, not by taking a poll and see what the majority of people think. And then the doctrine of God, from which we get from the Scriptures, anticipates the nature and character of God's decree. That is, the character of God's decree is going to flow out of His character and of His nature. What God wills and thinks, said Martin Lloyd-Jones, is going to be consistent with what God actually does. And we have established from Scripture that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Should we therefore expect His decree to be anything different than that? You know, there are many people today who will gladly voice, yes, God is king, He is sovereign. But then when you start to ask them questions about predestination or election or how God went about it, They'll say, they'll say things like, well, you know, God at some point in the past kind of looked into the future. He's observing creation. He's learning what they're doing, and then he's adjusting to their responses and, and, and all that. And on that basis, then he decides to elect or ordain, quote unquote. So in other words, the mind of the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God was finite because God had to learn something and had to figure these things out by observing. His mind was not eternal, because all of this supposed learning has a point of beginning. And his mind was changeable, because God has to adjust his plan based on what he observes from his creation. Beloved, it doesn't make any sense. You can't have the nature and character of God in opposition to the nature and character of God's decree, God's mind, God's will. The Bible is not some hodgepodge of beliefs just thrown together. Rather, it represents to us a consistent, logically ordered world and life view coming from the eternal, infinite, and unchangeable mind of God. And so our task is to take these pieces that God has given to us and to put them together, to see how they fit together. Well, we better get on to the actual doctrine now, or this is going to be a second introduction. <laughs> so... Well, in our intro, we, we kind of hinted around the idea of what a decree is and what it involves. Remember, we quoted Mark Lloyd-Jones. We heard how the eternal decree of God deals with the why and the manner in which God works before he actually does work. Well, let's get even more precise. What exactly do we mean by the eternal decree of God? 
In our larger catechism, question 12, it asks, what are the decrees of God? The answer, God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. So let's begin to break this definition down. I say begin because this is probably going to be a two-parter to what I'm doing here today. I mean, the more I got to writing, I just ran out of time. But. So let's begin to break this down. First, let's consider the word decree. If you were to look this word up in a modern dictionary, you would find a definition like this, an authoritative order having the force of law. Well, if we go a little ways back to the old original Webster's Dictionary, you'll find a number of definitions. One is, in general, he says, an order, edict, or law made by a superior as a rule to govern inferiors, or simply an established law or rule. Or you'll even find this definition, which is why I love the original Webster's. Definition number six. In theology, it is the predetermined purpose of God, the purpose or determination of an immutable being whose plan of operations is, like himself, unchangeable. And he just touched on everything we talked about last week in that one definition. And so when we talk about the decrees of God, we are talking about God's plans, his orders, his purposes for creation. Now, there's something interesting to note in our standards. Notice that both the larger and shorter catechisms ask, what are the decrees of God, plural? But if you look at chapter 3 of your confession, which I encourage you to read, and I hope you did, what is the title of that chapter? Of God's eternal decree, singular. So which is it? Are we talking about multiple decrees or one singular decree? Was this a typo in our standards? Well, no, I don't think they made a mistake. Remember what we have said about God. We have said that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And he is infinite, eternal, eternal and unchangeable in his knowledge, in his wisdom. And so understand, beloved, that God's knowledge is immediate. It is simultaneous. God does not think in successive thoughts like you and I do, because we are creatures of time, and he is not. Isaiah 46, and I want to spend a little bit of time in here. This is where most of this is going to be today. It says in verse 8, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Now, there's some very fascinating things about this portion of Scripture. First, notice how God contrasts himself with all others. What is the one thing that God in this text points us to to show the difference between himself and everybody and everything else? What is it in this text that God points to in order to show that he is unique, unlike any other? Let me read it to you again. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, 
declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Beloved, as I said before, there are many people walking around who would have no problem saying that God is king, that he's in control, that he's sovereign. But I think for many, they view his sovereignty much like they would view the sovereignty of the Queen of England. Listen to what it says here in Isaiah. This text is not drawing a comparison or a likeness between God and how he rules with how a human king governs and rules. God says, there is no other. There is no one like me. How? In what way? Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, why is God saying this? Well, let's go back a few verses. Let's go back up to 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who, are, who were incensed against him. And the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, shall be justified and shall glory. Baal bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, you have been born by me from before your birth, carried from, from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from, from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down in worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. And now we're at verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. So you see here, Isaiah is saying, that remember the former things, Israel. God has testified over and over and over again. And you were taught by constant predictions and shown by numerous proofs, God's nature, his power and his greatness. And this he has done, not just for a few minutes or a few days or even a few years, but he has done this at all times and in all things. Yet you fashion these idols and these false gods. How stupid and foolish can you be? Here you are, finite and foolish men, imagining and creating your own gods to rule over you. Beloved, think about this. How can the creation of something coming from the hands of a finite creature be anything but finite? 
You know, Paul points out this same foolishness to those in Athens. In Acts chapter 17, listen to what Paul declares to the men of Athens. You remember, he walked up on this scene where all these idols, and he was, uh, I think the word basically means he was, he was angry in spirit. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, saying, or for, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And, on, and of this, he has given us assurance to all by raising him, that man, from the dead. You know, some people, when they read this text, I think they mistakenly interpret that Paul here is trying to find some sort of common ground with the believer and then, and then work from that common ground to show that, you know, they're not really that far off with their unknown God. I don't think that's his point at all. I think Paul's actually pointing out how foolish and contradictory they are. On the one hand, he points out, your own poets say, we are indeed his offspring. But if that is the case, how can the offspring of a God turn right around and create the God? If Zeus, for example, which is who that God is in reference to in that, that, uh, from that poet that Paul quotes, if Zeus is the life force in all things and gives all things their being, which is what the poem teaches, how can that which gives them life be at the same time dependent upon those things for its own life? It's absurd. It's insane. That would be like you giving birth to a baby and the baby comes out of the womb, starts talking, and is like, I don't need you. I never needed you. I'm like, you weren't even a thought nine months ago. What are you talking about? It's crazy. Being then God's offspring, says Paul, we not ought to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. God made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything from you and I, since he himself gives to all of us life and breath and everything. It was he who made from one man every nation. It was he who has determined their allotted times in boundaries of their dwelling place. It is in him we live and move and have our being. I think this is essentially the same thing Isaiah is bringing out here in this text that we're looking at. 
Israel, you created these stupid, dumb idols, and they're nothing but a burden. They don't talk. They don't listen. They can't even walk. You have to strap them on the back of your cattle to carry them off. And then when you get uh, ransacked and taken captive, they go along with you because they can't do anything about it. <laughs> and yet it was God who gave you birth, he says to Israel. It is God who carries you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. You don't have to carry me like you do with your stupid idols. I will carry you and save you. To whom will you liken me and make me equal to? And compare me that we may be alike. I have declared, that is, I have commanded the end from the beginning. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Beloved, I'm going to say something very strong here. And I warned you about this. There's going to be some stuff I'm going to say. <laughs> it's one of those hard sayings. I think when we start to go down this path of arguing, well, you know, God, the way he planned was he observed what we were going to do. And he based, you know, he based his plan off of our actions and learned about what we were going to do and responded accordingly and made his plans. Understand it, I believe at that point you were rejecting the God of Scripture. You're going down this path of idolatry and forming a God of your own likeness, of your own image, a God that you can wrap in a nice, neat box. Is he the Lord of heaven and earth who does not live in temples made by man? Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, or is he not? Are we dependent upon him, or is he dependent upon us? Is he the Lord of heaven and earth who made from every nation one man? from one, one man, having determined their allotted times and boundaries, or is he not? The God who looks into the future in order to observe and to learn and thus plan accordingly is not the God spoken of here by Isaiah and by Paul. That's a God that is served by human hands. That's a God who needs man. That's a God who needs to consult with men in order to plan and execute. That is not the God of the Bible. Think about it. If a man is so foolish so as to think that he could actually form and create the God from whom he derived his own being from, what in the world would make you think that the infinite, immutable, and eternal God would need to consult with us fools in order to make his plans? But also notice here, back to Isaiah the Hebrew words translated as counsel and purpose. Both of these words are singular. In all of what God calls Israel to remember, her past, God refers to it as his singular counsel and singular purpose. So we see ultimately there, there is only one plan. There's one truth. There's one singular, all-encompassing, comprehensive thought in the mind of God. There are not multiple plans in the mind of God. God does not have multiple wills. God did not set off to do one thing, got caught off guard by what Adam and Eve did, and said, oh, rats, let's go to plan B. But the reason why the Catechism speaks of the eternal decree of God, as decrees plural, is because of the limitations that we have as finite creatures. Louis Burkhoff writes, quote, as an eternal and immutable decree, it could not be otherwise. 
There is therefore no series of decrees in God, but simply one comprehensive plan embracing all that comes to pass. Our finite comprehension, however, constrains us to make distinctions. And this accounts for the fact that we often speak of the decrees of God in the plural. Beloved, notice in our catechisms that although there are only a few questions that are dedicated uh, pointedly, specifically to this question of God's eternal decree, notice that literally everything else that follows after those questions is the unfolding of that decree. So it's not as though the divines just, you know, they throw around these few questions about this decree thing, and then they move on quickly to talk about creation, salvation, all the rest. Understand, beloved, that creation, man, salvation, the church, the law, eschatology, all of it is the unfolding and execution of this single one decree. And it, it is as this decree is executed in time and space that we, finite creatures, of, of time and space, see and understand it in parts. Well, this brings me to my next point as we close. Notice what all this decree involves. Now, I've already hinted to this a couple of times, but let's make it a point of emphasis and be clear here. This one singular, eternal, and immutable decree involves everything that comes to pass. There's no exceptions here. This is very important. You know, I've actually had conversations with guys who were students at uh, Calvinistic colleges and seminaries, one in particular up in Kentucky. And again, they have no problem declaring that God is, is sovereign and he foreordains things, but they don't believe that God foreordained everything that comes to pass. They don't believe that God would be concerned or care about foreordaining every single thing that happens in our lives. I mean, if a guy stubs his toe on the couch... Are we really to believe that God decreed that? Why in the world would God's decree, they argue, be involved with such minor, uninteresting, insignificant things? I mean, who cares about that kind of stuff, right? Well, again, beloved, the doctrine of Scripture, it's not a question about what we think is important or significant. We are not the standard. What does God say about his decree? That's the question we need to be asking. Well, again, we don't have to go far. We're right here in this text. Notice verse 10. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Now, on the surface, that sounds like it encompasses all things, right? I mean, what could be left out of the words from the end from the beginning? Well, if you recall, I mentioned hypocriterism last week and how sometimes they will affirm some of our uh, doctrine of creation, and yet they end up with radically different results. Well, I have brought this verse up to hyperpreters because it says God declares the end from the beginning, but you guys don't believe there's an end. So what do you do with it? So how do they get around it? Well, they claim the end from the beginning here is limited solely to the nation of Israel. And I'm just giving you this example. There's other ways people do this to get around this. This is just one example. But they say that those words have... It only has to do with Israel and nothing else. Clever, but wrong. And here's why. Now, there's no question that Isaiah here is dealing primarily with Israel. That's who he's speaking to. We, we pointed this out. We see this in verse 3. He's telling the house of Jacob to remember the former things of old. But notice in his dealings here with his covenant people, there are certainly things or people or events that fall outside 
this restriction of Israel, these boundaries of Israel. If we expand on this context, we see numerous indications of this throughout. For example, look at chapter 44, verse 23. The Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens and who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of uh, diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge fullness. Beloved, last I checked, the heavens are stretched over all the earth, not just the land of Israel. But then he goes on, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Now, who is this Cyrus character we're reading about here? Well, Cyrus was a pagan king. He was a Medo-Persian king who conquered Babylon in 539 BC, around 200 years after Isaiah spoke these words. And it was his conquering of Babylon which in turn helped free up Israel. So yeah, Cyrus did have some involvement with Israel, but beloved, this context does not limit Cyrus and his activity to Israel only. It was this pagan king whom God anointed, 45 verse 1, who would subdue nations before him and loose the loins of kings. Cyrus, also known as Cyrus the Great, founded this massive empire that embraced all of the previous civilized states of the ancient Near East. And he would eventually, they would eventually conquer most of Western Asia and much of Central Asia. We've gone way beyond the boundaries of the land of Israel. It was one of the largest empires that the world had seen up to that point. In fact, one of his titles was King of the Four Corners of the World. Now, do you think this king, that the text says God has chosen and anointed, just danced his way into the nations and won the people's heart by singing a nice tune on Babylonian idol? No. He killed people. He subdued nations. It is in this context that God will go on to say in chapter 45, verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. What is the evil or calamity, your translation may say, that God is referring to in this context, that he says that he does? It's all the harm and calamity and destruction that Cyrus did in subduing the nations. That's the context. It is this same pagan king whom God speaks of Right after telling Israel in chapter 46, verse 10, that he commands the end from the beginning, we've read it multiple times now, it is right after this that he says in verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. It was God who called forth Cyrus 
This ravenous bird, is how the King James words it, from the east, this bird of prey, to hunt down people, to hunt down, in particular, Babylon, to capture it. Are we then to infer then that this declaring the end from the beginning involved only Israel, didn't involve other people, other nations? Are we to infer that this command of the end from the beginning only included some good things like salvation from exile, but, but not the death and destruction, which was the means to bring about that salvation from exile in the, in the, in the uh, destruction of Babylon? Was God not concerned with these other nations? Was he not interested in most of Western uh, Asia, in much of Central Asia, Asia? So God decreed to save Israel from exile, but left all out all the means by which that would come to pass, just left it up to chance. It's like, well, let's just hope it works out. Beloved, the very calling of this bird of prey from the east, who caused much darkness and calamity, is prophesied here by Isaiah 200 years beforehand as being part of that very counsel and purpose that God declares the end from the beginning. There's simply no way to restrict this to Israel alone or just to the good and sweet things that happen in the world. But rather, as our confession states, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing is left out. No people are left out, no types of people are left out, and no activities are left out. Well, there are other passages we can go to as well and other arguments we can make, and perhaps we'll incorporate some of those in the next lesson. But I just wanted to camp out here a little from this text because it provides such a powerful word about the uniqueness of God in contrast to the dumb idols of his decree and of the nature of it as a single decree, and then the extent of it. I mean, beloved, if God's command of the end from the beginning involves the calling of a ravenous pagan king, whom God calls his shepherd to perform all my pleasure, chapter 44, 28, and it involved the stomping down of most of Western Asia and much of Central Asia, what possible objection could there be to what our confession has laid out for us? Does it get any worse than war? Well, actually it can. And I'll end with this. What about the unjust murder of the perfect sinless man, our Lord Jesus Christ? Acts 2 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God who cruci you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And guess what? Isaiah saw that one coming too. Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and equated with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow, sorrows and yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if we go down to verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord. Some translations may say the desire, the delight of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Yeah, but Jason, this was for our salvation. I don't have a problem with God decreeing things involving our salvation. But folks, what does this salvation involve? What are the means by which this plan came, came about? It involved the cold-blooded murder and torture of one in whom there was found no deceit in his mouth, no sin. He had done no violence to deserve anything that he got. And that was the means by which God brought about our salvation. And so you've got to ask yourself at this point, what else could be off the table? What else is there? If God determined and willed to crush this man, this sinless lamb, for his purpose, for his counsel, did not God determine who would do it and how? And if he had determined who, did he not have to see to it that the who would be born in the first place, that they would exist, and that the lives of those involved in this murder were preserved and governed over their entire lives? Or did he just leave their whole lives up to chance? Was God thinking, okay, this is what I'd like to do, this is what I planned, but I'm just going to leave you know, this soldier's whole life up to chance and just hope, I'm just hoping it works out. Fingers crossed. But again, I ask, what's, what's off the table at this point? What aspect of their lives was insignificant? What parts were left up to chance? And if you object that God would not decree evil, I ask, how much more evil could it get between these two examples? This is why I was focusing on these two examples with Cyrus and here the murder of Jesus Christ. There's more to life than just evil that I could have spoken to and shown from Scripture as being included in decree. But since nobody has a problem with God decreeing the good stuff, I figured I would focus on the bad stuff. And once we have settled that even that is included, which I believe is undeniable here in these texts with Cyrus and the murder of Christ, then again I ask, what is there else to leave out and object with? Well, I'm out of time here, but Lord willing, we'll pick right back up from here next Lord's Day and continue on this track. And we'll expand a little bit more on the extent of this decree and then address questions of responsibility, secondary causes, and the like.